we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the cabin in the woods located somewhere at a mystery location in County Cork in the south of Ireland, uh, we look at stories of mystery and history, always attempting to remain critical but never cynical. This episode all about uh, cryptozoology and paleo creatures and this is my chat with the fantastic tyler greenfield we cover a whole lot of uh, mysterious creatures supposedly you know supposedly extinct uh, which some folks reckon are still being sighted around the world this is almost entirely water dwelling organisms in fact if we hadn't kind of gotten started talking about pterosaurs this would have been uh, an entirely aquatic creature episode and it would have been much easier for me to name it uh, as it happens i think i'll call the episode something like um, paleo cryptids or some sort of thing like that anyway i had a great chat with tyler about this we talk about megalodon and something called the Triassic Kraken, which was new to me. Uh, I've, I, well, I'd only come across it through Tyler's writing. And um, so, so something of a minor storm in certain paleontology circles. So I think you're going to enjoy this episode. It's early November, so the kind of Halloween rush has just passed. All of your favorite kind of mystery or spooky themed shows and podcasts probably have just had their October spooky Halloween episodes out and um, I might do a quick shout out to a friend of the show and friend of myself Victoria Pearson who has some writing in the current edition of Hellbore which is a UK I believe based magazine about um, folklore and horror and the crossover between the two and I think it's a really really good match between herself and that particular publication uh, as always uh, amazingly illustrated just, they just get all the top writers and um, artists in that kind of genre so huge shout out to Victoria there and always as always I like to say that I'm chuffed to have friends who are doing such um, creative and interesting things uh, so as always you can reach out say hello over on twitter at strange ireland or on instagram wide atlantic weird podcast and you can help out as always over at buy me a coffee it is buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide atlantic and my beer for this episode very important i almost forgot it is from nine white deer brewing and it's called stag ipa and as I'm having a just a, just a very sensibly sized glass of this uh, in preparation for the chat with Tyler Greenfield, uh, I want you to imagine that the cabin, of course, is full of bones of strange animals from eons past, skulls up on the wall, uh, and uh, a lot of paleo art, that wonderful uh, style of drawing animals who have long passed, or have they? Well, have a listen and decide for yourself. Here it is. Yeah, so I'm currently an undergrad student at the University of Wyoming. I'll be getting my uh, degree in geology, but it will be with a very heavy focus on paleontology. I've, I've published a few small papers on paleontology, taxonomy, uh, nomenclature issues, because that's one of my main interests. But I also have a very, very big interest in cryptozoology, okay. and I'm hoping to publish on that within the next year or so. Depends on how busy I am with with school and life, but I would like to get some of that work out there pretty soon. So, are you allowed to say like what kind of places are publishing this? Just out of interest, you know, because the thing that a lot of people say is, "Oh, we can't get this stuff. Nobody wants to pay attention to it. We can't get it published anywhere." Who? What kind of places are interested in this? It just—it really depends on what kind of cryptozoology you're doing. Uh, if you know, if you're familiar with the work of like Charles Paxton, he does a lot of statistical work, so or and ecological work. So journals that focus on ecology and statistics, sometimes they might publish that stuff. Uh, if you were doing more heavy on like the anecdotal evidence, there's, there's a journal called the Journal of Scientific Exploration, if you've ever heard of it. Um, it sometimes strays into the paranormal and kind of the goofier stuff sometimes, but it has published some decent cryptozoology papers um, 
So that that's one journal that I've been looking at. Um, it, it really just depends. Sometimes uh, sociological journals will put out calls for cryptozoology related papers. You really never know what's going to pop up. And a lot of times you just have to take whatever opportunity there is. Whatever journal is interested at the time in something crypto related, go for it <laughs> because it'll be difficult to find something. That's tremendous. I, I do find myself going for the sociological stuff more often on the show, despite my own my own training originally in zoology. And um, I do I do hear listeners say, oh, you know, this guy talks about it from a zoological per perspective. I don't really feel like I do very often. Um, because I, I find it as being more of a, I, I'm more interested in the interpretation of it as a sociological ph phenomenon, but um, we, I do want to talk about zoology and I do want to talk about paleo today. So um, would you like to mention your blog and some of the writing you've been doing? Yeah, so I have a blog called Inserte Cetus. It's Latin for uncertain placement. It, it usually refers to a taxonomic group that is not easy to classify. And I think my writings usually fit that. I write about a lot of random stuff that's related to paleontology and cryptozoology. I haven't written about crypto for a while. I really need to, but I've just been busy lately. And I, I end up writing shorter things about paleontology instead. But I will have more cryptozoology-related stuff coming to my blog in the future. I've already got a couple of posts drafted. I've got one about hyphen sperm whales. Um, I've got one about living pterosaurs that I just, I just got to finish them. I got to get them out there but they, they will be out eventually. Um, yeah, I've been enjoying that this week and um, I, I'll put a link in the notes as always so folks can check out what you've been doing. I love how specific some of the stuff really is. It just takes me back to the my, my college days and learning taxonomy and how, how all of that changes so often and how these big feuds happen between people who believe that <laughs> things need to be in different places. And I remember learning about the lumpers and the splitters and... <laughs> yeah, taxonomy can get pretty heated sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Especially so, even when... When you're working with cryptids, there's a whole separate system that they use for taxonomy that is completely different from from mainstream zoological taxonomy, where they'll just give a cryptid a name and not really properly describe it, and then somebody else will come up with a competing name. Like there, there have been a bunch of different scientific names that have been proposed for Bigfoot alone. There's no standard whatsoever on which one is used, and of course, there's no proper description really to go along with it. So, yeah. so it ties into crypto in a really weird way. <laughs> I really enjoy the the kind of optimism of folks like, yeah, let's give it a name. Let's <laughs> give it a binomial. <laughs> yeah, even though we don't have much for physical evidence, we can't actually properly describe it. We'll still give it a scientific sounding name Yeah, just to, to sound scientific. I suppose the classic one is the Loch Ness one. The, um, oh, let's see, can I say this? The Nessicetus, ne what, Nessicetus rhombopteryx? Nessicetus rhombopteryx. <laughs> which means uh Loch Ness monster with with rhomboid shaped fins diamond shaped fins from the photographs that were taken in the 70s lovely uh, which were heavily retouched <laughs> to show a diamond shaped fin even though it's probably just debris on the bottom of the lock yeah that, that was crushing I, I remember reading about that recently <laughs> yeah there's I, I can't remember if it's Dick Rayner or somebody has a website with the original untouched photographs that you can see and they're so so disappointing, so disappointing compared to the retouched ones. It's just it's it's nothing. It's mud. There's oh, nothing there. The ones the, the the touched up ones that like were in the books I had as a kid. They're so they're so stirring. They're so yeah. They're perfect. They're yeah, amazing. They're awesome. <laughs> but they're not the real thing. We're so I wanted to ask about the the megalodons. Not something we, we've covered before on the show. And um, I've I've been reading recently. So Eddie Guimant, friend of the show, has has an article up recently called Yes, I saw that he published Monster of a New Mythology, which I've been I'll put a link to that in the notes as well. And I've been reading about that too. But you've written about this this as well. It's a relatively recent, is it? Well, I, I figured it was a relatively recent um, entry into the annals of cryptozoology because I didn't know about the 19th century stuff and I just knew about the more recent Discovery Channel stuff. But this has a bit more of a history than I than I realized. Yeah, it goes back pretty far. Uh, the first sighting that was really connected with Megalodon dates back to 1918. Uh, it was recounted by the Australian naturalist uh, David Stead or Steed. I'm not for sure how you pronounce it. He was, he was a pretty well-known naturalist in his time. He wrote a lot of popular books on uh, ichthyology and oceanography, even though as far as I know, he did not have any formal education in it. Uh, he was just the manager of the trawling industry 
uh, in New South Wales. So his his learning mainly came from field experience as opposed to like a formal college education. So he was pretty well known uh, in the early 1900s and was a fairly respected source. And he he reported not a sighting of his own, but one that fishermen uh, had supposedly seen. Uh, and this occurred near Broughton Island or Broughton Island. Again, I'm not for sure how you pronounce it, off the coast of Port Stephens, which is in New South Wales, Australia. Uh, and they had supposedly seen a massive albino shark that had, it had attacked their crab traps, it had attacked their boats, um, but they had somehow gotten away from it and, and lived to tell the tale. And they reported variously that it was either 115 feet long or 130 feet long, or not 130 feet, 300 feet long at maximum. So, I mean, just an outlandish size that is not at all possible. But th this, this story has gotten somehow connected with Megalodon even though it doesn't really describe a megalodon at all, and has become by far the most famous sighting. You see it repeated over and over again in all the cryptozoology books. But there are a lot of details that get left out of the retellings. Um, so David Stead first recounted it in his 1963 book, uh, Sharks and Rays of Australian Seas. This was published after he died. He died in 1957. Um, and it was, of course, you know, over 50 years after the sighting had actually occurred. And that's where most of the cryptozoology books will retell the story from. But Stead's retelling is missing some very important details from the original encounter that I think really show that this sighting shouldn't be taken all that seriously. So I found a newspaper article from 1918, uh, just a few days after the sighting had occurred. Um, and it, it includes the details that there was a storm that occurred before the fishermen sighted um, this shark and lost all their, their traps and, and boats to it. And it makes me wonder if the shark story was sort of a cover-up. You know, it was sort of their excuse to explain why they lost their, their boats and traps in the storm instead. And it, it, it makes me wonder if, if Stead's retelling deliberately omitted that detail, because in some cases his wording is very close to the newspaper account, which makes me think that he was, he had the account on hand and he was sort of copying it for his book, but that he deliberately sort of omitted the details about the storm, maybe to make it seem more reliable, not for sure. And I'm still, I'm still doing more research into this encounter to see if I can find any more sources. Did the original article mention the, the creature? It does mention the creature and it has the same details as the retelling. So again, a giant albino shark that's between 115 and 300 feet long. So it does include those details. Uh, he did retell those accurately. It's just that there's the detail of a storm occurring right before this sighting did that makes me really suspicious of it. Um, now, it's, it's possible that this sighting ha did happen and that it was maybe just an albino great white shark that was over-exaggerated to an enormous size. But it seems really unlikely that you would have a white shark that was fully albino and that it would attack their boats and traps. That's two rare things happening at the same time. You know, There's only ever been like two or three albino white sharks documented ever. So they're extremely rare. And attacks on boats and, and lobster or crab traps is very rare as well. So to have those two things occurring together is very implausible. It's not impossible. It just seems very unlikely to me. So that's more of a naturalistic explanation, but I still think that it's more likely to be a hoax, <laughs> a fish story <laughs> instead. What's the, so let's, let's talk about the megalodon itself. So what is known about it, um, you know, as a real creature from prehistory and when, when was it discovered? What was its place in pop culture? You know, did it have a, was it, was it a famous, well-known, you know, creature? Was it, was it like T-Rex? Was it like a, a, you know, a prehistoric superstar that, you know, people felt drawn to tell stories about? Yeah, even back then in 1918, Megalodon was all already very well-known. It was a very famous extinct animal, probably one of the most famous even at that time. Fossils of Megalodon have been known, I mean, for thousands of years. We found Megalodon teeth uh, in Mayan altars as sort of sacrificial offerings. Wow. Um, we found 
I think there was a Paleolithic example from Europe from 20 or 30,000 years ago of a megalodon tooth associated with various other artifacts. So humans have known about them forever. Uh, the first illustration of one that we know of is from the 1500s. I can't remember the exact source, but some, some book from that time period has a, has a drawing of a megalodon tooth along with some other fossils. And, and it was first actually given a scientific name in 1835, but we had known about it for much longer than that. Now, of course, they were often misidentified. Uh, they were thought to be petrified snake tongues. The gl glossopetrae is the Latin term, I believe, which, which just means stone tongue. Uh, and they were used uh, often to sense poisons in drinks. Like you would dip the tooth in a drink and supposedly either the tooth would change color or the drink would change color or the drink would foam. The sources differ wildly on the effects, but supposedly uh, a megalodon tooth, a snake tongue could detect poison in drinks. So in, in medieval or early historic times, you'll actually see ornamental like golden or silver trees with little megalodon teeth hanging from them. And you know, kings or nobles would have these at their dinner tables. And if they were suspicious of a drink, they take one from the tree and tip it in their drink. Wow. To see so if there where, was any poison. Where, where were these remains found? And what, you know, where around the world are we talking about? So megalodon teeth have been found on every continent except for Antarctica. They've been found in Europe, North America, um, everywhere. So pretty much any historical culture would have had access to megalodon teeth. And we do have many different examples from across the world. And we're still finding plenty of megalodon teeth. And contrary to popular belief, we don't just find teeth. Uh, several articulated or disarticulated vertebral columns, the vertebrae, of megalodon have been found. Some have been found in Belgium. Uh, there was one of a, of a related species found in New Zealand and Australia. So we have found their postcranial remains as well as their cranial remains. And then there's also been the uh, rostral cartilages, the part that forms the nose that have been found uh, here in North America that might belong to a baby megalodon actually. So we, we have more than just teeth, but teeth are by far the most common. What do we think they look like and what size are we talking? So maximum size, it differs depending on what estimation method you're using. Some use various tooth measurements. Some have tried to use the vertebral columns, just piece together how long the body was. So, I mean, historically, in the early 1900s, late 1800s, the, the maximum size estimates were between 80 and 120 feet. So just massive, actually about the same size as the creature reported in that sighting. So it makes sense that they would have connected with, with a megalodon because megalodon really was thought to be that large back then. But now we've, with more accurate methods and more complete material, we've been able to reduce the maximum size. So currently anywhere between 50 and 60 feet is closer to the maximum size for megalodon that is currently thought. I'm just doing some quick translations for uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> meters. For I, I'm not good about converting to metric. So I'm that, so used to our, our <laughs> measurements. Well, we're looking at about 18 or 20, maybe, meters. Yeah, 18 to 20 meters. For, so pretty, for pretty impressive. Yeah, the, probably the biggest shark that ever lived. There, there are some reports of whale sharks reaching 18 meters, but they're not always the most reliable. So, so Megalodon might be the biggest, or it might share that title with the, the modern whale shark. Um, well, so my, we, don't, we don't really know. <laughs> my taxonomy is a little rusty, but I'm going to ask a dangerous question. Um, without getting too much into the weeds, like how are they related to modern sharks? Are they uh, a more primitive? Are they more, you know, are, where, where do they fit into the, the sort of family trees, the taxonomic trees? So originally it was thought that they were actually a species of Carcharodon, which is the same genus that includes the modern great white shark. And, and in the late 1800s, early 1900s, the thinking was that Megalodon evolved directly into the great white shark. That due to various ecological pressures, it shrunk over time and we're left with our, our smaller but still very impressive great white shark. But more research has shown that this is probably not the case. Their closest living relatives probably still are great whites along with makos and salmon sharks and poor beagles. Um, but they're still regarded as a separate family from great whites. So great whites, makos, poor beagles, et cetera, are classified in the family lamb the day. 
while, while Megalodon is classified in the family Otodontidae, which includes a bunch of other genera that are commonly called the megatooth sharks. So the scientific name that is used for Megalodon has sort of changed throughout the years. Originally, it was Carcharodon Megalodon. Nowadays, it's either Otodus Megalodon or Carcharocles Megalodon. It depends on who you ask. That still really hasn't been solved yet. Personally, I prefer to use Otodus Megalodon, but there are plenty of others that prefer to use Carcharocles instead. So really just depends on who you ask. That's how it is for most taxonomic situations. Cool. And, and what do we think we know about its feeding habits? And, you know, let's talk about the, the jaws and the teeth because that's that's why, that's one of the reasons. <laughs> that's what everybody likes. A, a paleo superstar. <laughs> yeah, so based on evidence from bite marks on bones, we know that it preyed on small whales and seals and probably juveniles probably ate uh, fish as well. That seems to be the case for great whites, whereas juveniles, they prey on smaller things like smaller fish. And then as they get older and get larger, they start to prey on larger marine mammals. So it's probably the same for Megalodon. They would have started off on fish and eventually worked their way up to seals and these small whales. Uh, they're called cedithiers. Most of them are extinct nowadays. There is one living member, the pygmy right whale, that is still around, uh, but most of them are extinct. And we think that the extinction of these small whales might have contributed to the extinction of Megalodon because it lost a major prey source. But again, we're not 100% certain about that yet, especially since there is still one living member of these small whales. We can't say for sure that the extinction of the cedithiers caused the extinction of Megalodon. But yes, that would have been its main prey, uh, seals and small whales. So, so it's it's a dramatic, it's it's a famous, it's an eye-catching um, species. It, it's well already well known by Victorian times, early 20th century. People are starting to tell stories about it by at least 1918. Um, I, I seem to remember, I read in Eddie Guimont's article that in the 1870s, there is a, an expedition called the Challenger Expedition to the South Pacific, and they come up with a, 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 a rather improbable um, uh, aging for some teeth that they find, and they reckon the teeth are something like 11,000 years old, which is obviously comparatively comparatively recent. Um, so obviously stories, is, I mean, they, they don't claim to have seen a living one, but that I suppose maybe puts the idea out there that these things might have been around later than we thought. So sort of. Um, <laughs> the dating actually didn't come till much later. They weren't dated until the 1950s. They were found in 1875 by the HMS Challenger expedition. They dredged them up uh, from the seafloor, but they were not dated at that time. They really didn't have any methods for dating teeth like that at that time. Now, there were already rumors by the 1880s, 1890s, that recent megalodon, like fresh-looking megalodon teeth had been found on the seafloor. But this was just a rumor. This was not true. The teeth found by the Challenger did not look recent. They were clearly fossilized. So there was a rumor about it, but they weren't actually dated until the 1950s. Hmm. So there was a scientist uh, named Vladimir Chernesky. Uh, he was... I believe Russian, but he was working in uh, in London during the 1950s. And he never published very much besides this one paper on Megalodon. All of his other published work is on the Yeti, the abominable snowman. So he clearly already had a cryptozoological mindset when considering the dating of these teeth. So he used a method of looking at the manganese uh, that encrusted on top of these teeth. And based on the growth rate of that manganese, you know, however many millimeters per year, you could sort of figure out an age for how long the teeth have been on the seafloor. Now, there's problems with the methods that he used. He used a growth rate uh, that was far too fast, I believe, so that you ended up, it was either too fast or too slow, but either way, you ended up with uh, an age that was way too young, um, way, way younger than the teeth actually were supposed to be. And then Another problem is that these teeth had already been sitting on the seafloor before the manganese had started to encrust them. Like the, the teeth, the, the actual crown, the enamel covered part of the tooth was still left, but the root had already completely dissolved away before the manganese had started to encrust over the tooth. So it had already been sitting on the seafloor for a long time before this manganese growth. So it's really not at all a reliable way to estimate the age of these teeth. So what I've done is that I've looked back through the records of the other fossils that have been found uh, by the HMS Challenger expedition at these localities on the seafloor. 
and looking at the different shark teeth that have been found. And they are all teeth from the Miocene or Pliocene. <laughs> um, there's another shark called Parototus, which is a, a megatooth shark like Megalodon. It's a close relative. And that went extinct at the, about the same time as Megalodon. So around the end of the Pliocene, 3.6 to 2.6 million years ago. And there's another, there's an extinct white shark called Carcharodon hestalis that was also found with these teeth. That went extinct in the early Pleistocene, you know, a little over a million years ago. So it's clear that this fauna is of a very old um, sharks. They're not at all recent. So that, that's how I've sort of dated these teeth indirectly by the associated fauna. So there's really no reason to think they're only 24 to 11,000 years old. The fauna is pretty clearly Miocene or Pliocene, older than 3.6 million years. So, is there any equivalent to the sort of 19th century boom, you know, in sea serpent sightings that kind of takes off as a bit of a meme? Like, does does is there any is there any period of time in which these reports of this animal are very common? Are so it's... not really. That's kind of the surprising thing is that megalodon is very popular as a cryptid nowadays. But it's not like Bigfoot or sea serpents or Loch Ness. There's not hundreds of sightings, you know, extending over long periods of time. The 1918 sighting is pretty much the main one that is consistently repeated. There's some smaller ones that are occasionally popping up. There's some from the 1930s by Zane Gray, of all people, the famous Western novelist. And he describes a shark that sounds exactly like a whale shark, a big square head sort of a brownish or dark bluish color and lines of dots along its back. But for some reason, he claims that it's not a whale shark, even though he describes perfectly a whale shark. And somehow this has also got incorporated as a megalodon sighting, even though it doesn't really match up at all. Um, so that one's occasionally repeated, but not nearly as much as the other one. And then there are a few others that occasionally pop up, but there's really not much at all for megalodon sightings. Until until the Discovery Channel yeah. documentary came out, there has really been nothing. So so like before we get to that, do any of the kind of classic cryptozoology writers promote this? Does Huvelmans talk about this? Huvelmans, I don't think he mentions the sighting at all. Like in the wake of sea serpents, he talks about megalodon like very briefly, from what I remember. But it does not mention the 1918 sighting at all. Hmm. I think there's a brief mention of that rumor about recent. Uh, fresh-looking teeth being found, but that's about it. And he seems, again, to have sort of confused Megalodon with the great white shark. He says that great whites get up to be like 60 feet, and that Megalodon gets up to be over 100 feet. He's very confused about which sizes belong to which animal, so he, he doesn't really say anything of importance about Megalodon, to put it simply. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, I can't say I've come across it very often, but I do remember the Discovery Channel show, which I think was 2013. I, I remember yes. a lot of people. There was a sequel the next year. There was. And I remember, and there yes. was either the year before or the year after there was mermaids. And I remember a lot of people being very angry about this. And, you know, I mean, those of us who grew up watching some of those kind of channels, thinking that they used to be worth something and now they're not, I think probably always the history was a bit ropey or the science was a bit ropey, but um, it definitely got worse <laughs> or got a bit sillier at a certain point. And so, so there's a few, in terms of pop culture, there's a few more recent things you've got. Obviously, Jaws in the 1970s, which isn't directly about uh, Megalodon, but there is some, some DNA there because it's about the grave white. Yeah, I think Megalodon is mentioned in the book, if I remember right. Not, not majorly, but it's still connected a little bit <laughs> to I Jaws. Any kind of monster shark narrative, old, you know, post 1975. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Jaws. And then you've got the, the Meg novels in in the 90s and then you've got the, the 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 discovery channel stuff so is there any tell us a little bit about those maybe yeah so jaws i don't think really furthered the megalodon myth that much there were there were a few popular books after you know in the late 70s or in, into the 80s that would mention sightings of megalodon so they may have been spurred on by jaws it seems to increase slightly afterwards but not nearly as much as what would follow after. You know, Steve Alton's novel, The Meg, I think was published in 1997. And then, and then we saw more of an increase again in, in the idea that Megalodon was still out there. And then it kind of quieted down again. And then of course you get the Discovery Channel mockumentaries and now being in the age of YouTube and all these social media apps, 
that really propelled it and it has been going strong ever since and of course there was the meg movie that came out two or three years ago and and nowadays you can find probably hundreds if not thousands of youtube videos about megalodon sightings and it's all the same stuff you know it's it's rov footage of sleeper sharks they're like this giant 100 foot long shark is a megalodon but it's maybe like a 10 foot long sleeper shark <laughs> that that's a pretty common one or sightings of basking sharks and people are claiming they're megalodons so it's really bloomed into a phenomenon in the past decade more so than any of the other previous decades and what's it, what's its place today in in the community are people still talking about this is it still like is it taken seriously by any of the big hitters I don't, cryptozoology wise, I don't really think any major figures take it all that seriously. Like the last person I can think about that has ever written about it would be like Carl Schuker. Um, he dedicated a small section of his, his book, oh, Prehistoric Survivors, I believe it was called, or In Search of Prehistoric Survivors. And then, yeah, the original edition is from 1995, I believe. And then there was an updated edition that came out a few years ago. And I believe that has like a page or two about the Megalodon in it. And yeah, like, I have the 95 one here. That might be the, the last cryptozoological source that is written about it. I guess there, there was um, Ben Spears Roche's 1998 article about it as well that you can find online that covered that's sort of a debunking of living Megalodon. But those are some of the most recent sources to really consider it and write about it seriously besides my own. Otherwise, everything else is pretty either harshly critical of it or wholeheartedly believing in it and promoting it. There's not really much skeptical analysis done seriously of this topic anymore. Hoping to change that and maybe put the final nail into the coffin once I get my work out there. But well, I'm, I'm excited to see, see the final form. Um, let's let's move on a little bit, Tyler. You also mentioned something we could talk about the the living pterosaurs. This is something I'm I'm pretty <laughs> I find pretty fascinating. Yeah, so there there's one main proponent of living pterosaurs today. His name is um, Jonathan Whitcomb. He has a hundred websites. They're all practically identical, but the, he has various sock puppet accounts, and he posts on a whole bunch of different websites basically just to try and spread his message as far as he can. He's a, he's a young earth creationist and he believes wholeheartedly that there are living pterosaurs everywhere, not just in like isolated parts of Africa or Southeast Asia. He thinks there are living pterosaurs here in the United States, in, in Texas, in the, on the East Coast, uh, in the Pacific Northwest. He thinks there are pterosaurs everywhere in the US and that people are sighting them all the time. It's really insane. Like, how could you explain away that nobody has ever like shot a pterosaur here in the U.S.? I'm I don't just, understand. He's not that the either. only young Earth person who reckons that you know, if we discover a an animal thought to be extinct, that this will somehow you know make everybody stop believing in evolution. I don't I, like. We would just rearrange the like. We would just yeah. Rearrange the pterosaurs just survive longer. It, it wouldn't even it require any rearranging. I don't. Yeah. Gibbons was, was called out for that in a documentary once um, when he was looking for the dinosaurs. Oh, yeah, the Mokele Mbembe. Yeah, I found an old 90s or 90s, early 90s documentary where he's in Africa and the narrator says, says puts this to him um, and he just kind of says, well, you know, it's just going to make the Darwinists have to think again, won't it? I was like, yeah, but only in a very small... <laughs> yeah, we'd be very excited that there would be living yeah. dinosaurs, but it would not also... change... The theory of evolution in the slightest. Um, have you? Do you know? There's a story about a a, a pterosaur found in trapped in rock. A living pterosaur found trapped yes. in rock in a yes. quarry or a mine in France in the 1850s. Yes, and and it's funny because it's clearly intended to be a tongue-in-cheek article. It's satire. They they give this creature a scientific name, and it's it's Pterodactylus anas a n a s. An ass meaning duck. <laughs> it's 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 supposed to be silly, but some creationists and cryptozoologists have taken it seriously, like it is a truthful account of a living pterosaur being found trapped in a rock, even though it was clearly intended to be a joke. 
It's just not, it's, it was supposed to make people laugh, not make people believe that there are living pterosaurs. Yeah, I, I always liked that one. It, it, it definitely showed up in kind of books of 40 and stories, you know, right up until books I was reading when I was a kid, you know, published in the 80s and stuff would have had that story in it. Yeah, that was a, a weird sort of sub theme for Fortean phenomenon like of animals being found trapped in rocks. Yeah, frogs, uh, various small mammals. Of, I think there was even some about fish being trapped in rocks. I don't know how that ever got started or why that kind of went away. It's just an interesting historical yeah. phenomenon. Well, I found a little, I found an article on Magonia, which is always, always worth reading. This is, this is a Mike Goss article on Magonia and he writes them um, as early as four, 1843, a by no means credulous naturalist like Edward Newman, ed editor of the zoologist could ponder on the mysteries of these animals which he rather defensively liked to think of as marsupial bats. And then he goes on to say that, uh, quote, I, I merely hint, he's talking about pterosaurs here. Now, I merely hint as a matter of surmise that the race may yet probably exist, that representatives of the fossil pterodactyls may yet be found amongst the bats that abound within the tropics. Species or even genera may become extinct, but it rarely happens that a vast group like the pterodactyls is wholly lost and left without a representative. And then it goes on to quote him like complaining about the, the French pterodactyl story. And he directly makes a link to the uh, the frogs entombed in rock. And he says, this is just a particularly ridiculous example of that story, which shows that they were all current in, you know, in the mid 19th century. Yeah, he mentions marsupial bats, which is an interesting side note. So in the, in the very earliest 1800s, maybe like the 1810s, and I'm gonna forget the name of this person, but there was a German scientist who, who actually suggested that pterosaurs were marsupials, uh, that they were mammals and not reptiles or birds, like other scientists thought them to be at the time. Editing key in here, Tyler got in touch after recording just to clarify that this scientist was not a German, it was in fact a, an Englishman by the name of Edward Newman. So, so that actually was an idea that for a short period of time was taken seriously, that pterosaurs were marsupials, <laughs> bizarrely enough. I, I'm all for these kind of out there ideas, you know, as long as you don't hold yourself too much to them when, when the evidence comes in against them. Um, right. Are, are, and then like that, even what he's talking about there reminds me of that's exactly the way the story played out, because then later in the 20th century, again, from from Schuper's book, you get stories of these um, usually colonists in parts of Africa encountering um, supposed pterosaurs in the swamps and the jungles. Yeah, that was a, it, it sort of took off after the 1940s. There was a, I'm going to forget, of course, the author, but there was a paper published in one of the naturalistic societies of East Africa about the Kongamato, which is sort of a living pterosaur type creature, um, just sort of stories about it. It was more of a folklore article than anything, but that really put the idea into cryptozoologists' minds and the living pterosaur idea really took off from there. So, so for many years, some some cryptozoologists thought the Kongamato was a living pterosaur, and that it was alive in East Africa. I believe Roy Mackle led an expedition to look for it. I, I don't remember for sure. It might have been him or Ivan Sanderson. It's it's hard to keep track of because they all did a lot of expeditions looking for various different cryptids. So it's either Ivan Sanderson or Roy Mackle that went looking for the Kongamato. But I think they might've thought that it was a bat, a giant bat instead of a pterosaur. So there were some different ideas on it, yeah. but eventually it kind of moved away from that. And now the big living pterosaur cryptid is the Ropen in Papua New Guinea. Uh, that's another one that Whitcomb really pushes for, but there are plenty of other young earth creationists and cryptozoologists that have been hunting for the Ropen for the past 20 or 30 years. And what's interesting about that is that it's supposed to be bioluminescent a bioluminescent pterosaur, which is bizarre. We talked on a previous episode about how, like, some of these reports are basically just strange lights in the sky, which in other circumstances would very much fit into a UFO situation, but... Oh, yeah, there, there's some uh, footage that is purported to be of a rope in, and it's just a little light moving through the sky. It's, it's basically just a UFO sighting. Yeah. So it is weird how that kind of ties into more of the paranormal or UFO type story, even though it's supposed to be an animal and not an extra. 
real or a, a supernatural entity. So what, what goes around kind of comes around <laughs> yeah. eventually. And context is everything. Yeah. Right. I wanted you have I, so so you pointed out something we could talk about as well, which is new to me. This is this blew my mind a little bit, and this is the Triassic Kraken story, which I read about on your blog as well, and uh, this was new to me. Yes. Yeah. So the Triassic Kraken is probably one of the weirdest things that has happened in paleontology in the last decade. Uh, I was proposed by a paleontologist named Mark McMenamin. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Uh, he has published some work previously. I believe on like Cambrian and Precambrian life um, and that sort of thing. He's kind of known for his out there hypotheses. Like he has one called the hypersea hypothesis that like Earth was once like a global ocean, I think was how it went, but I can't remember for sure. He also uh, has delved into archaeology a bit. He thinks that the Phoenicians were the first to make it to America. So he's no stranger to weird ideas even before the Triassic Kraken. He's already on the fringe. But the Triassic Kraken pushes it over. So at the annual meeting of the Geological Society of America back in 2011, he has an abstract submitted, and he I think he had a presentation about it as well. He did not ever publish this in the peer-reviewed literature because, of course, it probably would not have been accepted and published. But he looked at ichthyosaur fossils, so these big marine reptiles from the Triassic period, at a, at a bone bed uh, in Nevada. And he noticed that there were some weird arrangements of the vertebrae of these ichthyosaurs. So in one case, it's it's two rows of the vertebrae lined up next to each other, and the vertebrae are laid flat. So it looks like two circles laid next to each other, and then there's a whole row of them up and down. And it is it is admittedly a very weird orientation. I, I'm not entirely convinced that the explanations that have been put forward for that water currents arrange them like that are necessarily true. I think there may be some sort of other sedimentological process going on here. So they really haven't been explained all that well. So that kind of opens up the door to weirder <laughs> explanations. So he was looking at this the, this double row of vertebrae and he thought it looked like the suckers of a cephalopod. And he he noticed that some octopuses will like arrange shells, they call them middens, where they'll eat clams, they'll suck the soft parts out and they'll sort of stack these shells together in big piles. Now, the, the caveat is that Modern octopuses do not arrange them into any sort of path. They're distributed randomly. They're just stacks of shells. But he, he still uses that as evidence to support his idea that a giant cephalopod was responsible for arranging these ichthyosaur vertebrae. Now, there are, of course, a lot of problems with this. Um, he thinks that this, this giant Triassic Kraken was 30 meters long, so about 100 or so feet, which is bigger than any cephalopod that has ever existed and far bigger than any cephalopod that lived during the Triassic. Triassic cephalopods were pretty small, under a meter, about under three feet long. So there's nothing even approaching this size that is around at the time. But he thinks that they're this size because they had to be able to kill the ichthyosaurs and then arrange their bones. And the ichthyosaurs are huge. They're like 50 or so feet long. So of course you have to have a cephalopod that is twice the size in order for them to kill the ichthyosaurs and arrange their bones. Now, of course, he also thinks this cephalopod is hyper-intelligent, that it's arranging these patterns as a form of self-portrait, that it's done to resemble the suckers on its own arms. And of course, there's a problem with this as well. So these, these vertebrae are arranged in two rows, but all of the cephalopods that we know that were around in the Triassic only had a single row of suckers. Uh, it's only modern cephalopods like octopuses and some squid that have evolved double rows of suckers. But I, anything from the Triassic just has a single row. So right there, your your entire idea just kind of falls apart. There's there ends up being no resemblance between this pattern and the and the suckers of any cephalopod that would be around back then. And and the thing is, is that nobody brought this up for 10 years. <laughs> I just wrote about this. Oh, was it in May? I think all the other debunkings and stuff focus on like the taphonomy, the, the water currents and the sedimentology and how the vertebrae could have been arranged by natural processes. But none of them actually looked at the heart of it. None of them went straight for the Kraken to see if this is actually plausible or not. And that's what you have to do in this case, because really the vertebrae, their arrangement hasn't been explained terribly well. So if you're just basing it on that, 
you don't really have much of a debunking. And, you know, not to be uh, offensive to any of the other authors who have written about it, but their, their debunkings just aren't very good. They don't really strike at the core of the hypothesis, which is what I wanted to do. So, and, and obviously once you do, it falls apart fairly easily. It didn't really take all that much to, to get rid of this idea, but. Were there cephalopods at any point in, in prehistory, like larger than, you know, Ar Arcthutus or, or of that size? No. We have the biggest <laughs> ones now that we've ever had. Yeah, Arcatuthis and Mesonicatuthis, the colossal squid, are the largest. I believe the colossal squid is largest by mass, but the giant squid is largest by uh, overall length. There is nothing in the fossil record that even comes close to the length of, of modern squids. Uh, the largest cephalopod known from the fossil record is one called Endoceris uh, from the Ordovician period. I've also written about this one. It had sort of a long conical shell and a little sort of squid-like animal coming out of the end. And the longest endoceras shell that has ever been found was 5.7 meters, about six meters long. So sort of that 18 foot range, but that's the, the longest cephalopod known from the fossil record. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Architeuthis, it's, its maximum length is heavily debated, but, you know, you'll see estimates anywhere from like 12 or 13 meters the 15 meters, the 18 meters, but whatever the case, it clearly exceeds the size of even the largest extinct cephalopods. And, and even that is not even half the size of the Triassic Kraken. So it, it makes it even more implausible that this thing would have existed. Oh, it's just one of those stories where like so much is made of so little. And yeah, there was a huge media hype about it back in, you know, 2011, 2012. They, they, a lot of the, the journalists didn't really realize that it was an unpeer-reviewed abstract at a conference and not a paper. So they just ran with it. You know, mainstream paleontologist says that there were giant krakens a hundred feet long in the Triassic that killed ichthyosaurs. That was the head, those were the headlines. They were taking it a hundred percent seriously. Um, and of course, then there were rebuttals from other paleontologists, but again, they didn't really focus on the actual cephalopod evolution and anatomy aspect of it. They mainly focused on the taphonomy. So it wasn't really enough to counteract the wave of media hype at that time. And there, there are still probably some people out there who believe that it, it exists. Besides, of course, Mark McMenamin himself. He's written more about it since then. He, he wrote a very bizarre book about paleontology. It's sort of a hodgepodge of his different pet theories. And of course, there's a chapter on the cra Triassic Kraken. It's an interesting read, but it doesn't add anything substantial to what he has already said. So, you know, these so he still he still very much supports it, but nobody else really does. <laughs> Sometimes when folks have a pet theory and it kind of goes against everything else, but they stick to it and it becomes their their thing and they they refuse to back down. You know, they 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 keep going for it. But it's something really out there, something really sexy, something really fascinating. I get it, but do you know the way? Sometimes there are these folks who just. They have just a slightly different family version of the taxonomy to everybody else. And there's nothing oh, yeah. outside yeah. of the paleontological world. Nobody would ever pay. No journalist is going to, you know, give them a front cover on this because they think that the family was slightly different. And yeah. yes, they're, they're, they're just pissing everybody off in the industry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is, it is funny these little debates that are just isolated to the community and that nobody else really knows about or really <laughs> understands if they do know about it. The Triassic Kraken is a little bit different than that, but to some extent, it is very much isolated to the paleontology community. You know, you wouldn't hear a geologist really talk about the Triassic Kraken, or even like somebody who studies living cephalopods. They probably wouldn't talk about it that much. But of course, the paleontologist would. Every paleontologist knows about it. It seems like <laughs> nowadays it's become pretty a pretty infamous event in our history. <laughs> I'm very, very glad that I came across this. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Cadbarosaurus. We might have mentioned this a little bit when I talked with um, Cameron McCormick uh, earlier in the year, uh, but I don't think we really gave much detail. So I want to get my, my paper on Megalodon done, and that might take a while. So then afterwards, then I want to do my paper on, and not Cadbarosaurus like the sightings, but the actual holotype specimen. Yes, there, there was Oh. A proper description of Cadborosaurus. And yes, it does actually meet the requirements 
set by the International Code of Zoological Nomenclature. So it is, it's, it's different from other scientific names proposed for cryptids. It does have a proper description. It does have a proper holotype. According to the ICZN, according to the code, it is a valid description, which puts it in a very odd area. So, so my work has focused on the holotype that was chosen. Um, now, this, this was done in a paper in 1995 uh, by, let's see, it was Paul LeBlanc and Ed Boosfield. Ed Boosfield uh, studied amphipods, so he's like an invertebrate guy. And then Paul LeBlanc is more on like wave and ocean physics. So neither of them are really all that knowledgeable about vertebrate animals, uh, but they do have a very, they, well, I should say they did. They both passed away since, but they, they did have a very keen interest in cryptozoology. So they rediscovered these very odd photographs um, from 1937, taken of a carcass that had actually been removed from a sperm whale's stomach. And they thought that it looked similar to sort of the anecdotal reports of a creature that had been informally named Cadborosaurus or Caddy for short. So they they just they used these photos as the holotype. And mm. and actually, oh yeah, do you have a question? In folklore, what was it supposed to look like? Or where 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 where, where are we talk we're talking about the Pacific Northwest, right? Yeah, Pacific Northwest, uh, Washington, Oregon, British Columbia. I think there have been some from Alaska as well, but most have been from British Columbia. And it's very much associated with the, their local culture. Um, and sightings, it, it depends on what you want to include in them, because a lot of the sightings are very different from each other. And over time, they've been homogenized to fit the idea of this cryptid type. But some sightings occurred in the 1800s. They really took off in the 1930s, probably influenced by the media around the Loch Ness Monster. We really see an uptake in caddy, like newspaper accounts and book stories and things in 1933 and 34, which again is when the Loch Ness Monster really took off. So it's definitely inspired by that. But if we're to believe sort of the homogenized version, it's a very long serpentine animal with a head that looks sort of like a moose or a camel or a horse without any horns of any sort. Sometimes it has ears or almost like little horns. It really depends. Sometimes it has a mane, but that's sort of the general description of the animal. And what, what Boosfield and LeBlanc uh, saw in these photographs from 1937s in this carcass was sort of an animal fitting that description, but very vaguely. The carcass is clearly heavily degraded. It was digested in the stomach of a sperm whale after all. So it's pretty, pretty shriveled up and hard to tell exactly what it was. And this sperm whale had been caught um, off the coast of the, the Queen Charlotte Islands. Well, they were, they were called the Queen Charlotte Islands back then. I believe they're called the Haida Gwaii archipelago nowadays. They've returned it to the native name, but a lot of the cryptozoological literature still calls them uh, the Queen Charlotte Islands. So sometime in late June or early July uh, in 1937, a whaling station on one of the Northern Islands, they had brought in this sperm whale for processing uh, to turn its blubber you know, into whale oil and to get the whale oil from the head as well. So they were cutting it open and out comes this, this is a very strange, shriveled up but sort of serpentine shaped carcass and they really had no idea what it was so they took photographs of it i believe there were three photographs taken from various angles and then they sent it to uh, the museum in victoria british columbia so it arrived there in early july and that was kind of all that was ever heard about it there were some newspaper accounts around that time but then the photographs were forgotten about uh, the carcass itself has never been relocated it apparently is not present in the collections of that museum any longer. And then in the 1990s, Boosfield and LeBlanc rediscovered the photographs. And, and LeBlanc had already done work on collecting anecdotal evidence for Cadborosaurus. So he was already familiar with it. And he recognized that this carcass sort of vaguely looked like the descriptions of the creature in various accounts. So then they published the paper on it. They designated the photos as the holotype. Now that is interesting because some scientists really don't like that. They don't like that you can use photographs to name species, but it is perfectly um, allowed by the, the, the code of zoological nomenclature. You can use photos as a holotype, but the specification is, is that the photos themselves are not actually the holotypes, but it is the individual depicted 
in the photographs that is the holotype. So they were a bit mistaken with their terminology. They do say that the photos are the holotype, but what they really mean is that the individual in the in the photos is the holotype. So that does not discount their their description. It still remains valid. Now, of course, I don't think it's correct at all. I don't think that this carcass was actually a Cadborosaurus. I think it was probably a juvenile basking shark, which is sort of an odd idea. It has been proposed before, but has never really been explained uh, in detail. I think he was first proposed, um, oh, was it Aaron Bauer and Anthony Russell? They wrote a rebuttal paper to the Cadborosaurus paper, and they, they said that a basking shark was the most likely candidate for this carcass. Uh, but they did not really elaborate any further. But there is some circumstantial evidence to indicate that it's a basking shark. So there are reports of sperm whales having actually eaten juvenile basking sharks before. Um, there was one in 1956 that they, they cut open a sperm whale, again, similar to the how the original carcass was found, and they found an entire juvenile basking shark inside. It had been not been digested for very long, so it was still pretty much the whole animal. Then there was another case where another sperm whale was cut open at a whaling station, and all that was left was sort of the vertebral column that had turned into a gelatinous mass. So that one had been digested for much longer. So this this 1937 carcass, uh, which is which is usually called the Naden Harbor carcass, Naden Harbor is the whaling station uh, where it was found. So the Naden Harbor carcass is sort of in between that. It's not intact completely. It's not like the full basking shark but it is also not just a gelatinous mass. It's not completely digested, but it is somewhat digested. It's very shriveled up and shrunk in and it's missing quite a few of the fins. But the, the weird thing about Boosfield and LeBlanc's paper is that they treat this carcass as if it is fresh, as if, as if it looks exactly like the living animal, even though it is very obviously heavily digested and it's missing parts, they treat it like it is the intact animal. Like this animal really would have been this serpentine animal with sort of this weird head and these frayed tail fins, even though it's clearly decomposition. But they treat it as if that was the real animal. And that's what their entire description is based on. And they connect it with all the anecdotal encounters. And what my work is trying to do is to separate the anecdotal encounters away from this, not to look at it in that, that frame of mind, because it does, it does bias their interpretation. It clearly has. They think it represents the living animal when it's a digested shriveled carcass. So I wanted to take that mindset away and look at it from more of a naturalistic or animalistic, I'm not zoological perspective, compare it with other animals to see what it most closely resembles. And I think it most closely resembles a basking shark. So not only do we have the records of sperm whales eating basking sharks, that has already been proven to occur, but there are characteristics of this carcass that match up with basking sharks. So there's an interesting detail that is only included in one newspaper account. It's actually the first one that was released on uh, July 10th, 1937, that reports the arrival of the carcass uh, in Victoria at the museum. And it mentions that there are about 50 vertebrae in the body of the animal, not including the tail. Well, basking sharks have 50 vertebrae, give or take a few, in their body, not in the tail and not including the skull. So in the midsection of their body, they have around 50 vertebrae, but no one else has paid attention to this detail. Um, Boosfield and Blond only cite newspaper accounts going back to July 23rd. They don't cite any of the accounts from earlier from like July 10th. So they completely missed out on this, this detail. And, and as far as I know, no other accounts have included that vertebral count detail, which is super important because if it matches a basking shark, that's a pretty good indicator that it's probably the same animal because vertebral counts vary wildly among sharks. There's pretty much no other sharks that have like exactly 50 vertebrae in their body. You know, some will have like 70 or 100 or maybe 30, but not exactly 50. So that's pretty diagnostic for the basking shark. But there are also other details as well. What appears to be the skull of the carcass has sort of a downturned um, snout. It looks almost sort of like a horse head and that's what it's been interpreted to be. But some juvenile basking sharks actually have a curved down snout that almost looks like a beak. It looks very similar to the shape of the head of this carcass. And then as they grow older, that, that snout curves back up and takes more of a characteristic sort of shark-like 
almost like torpedo shaped instead of a hooked curved beak. And then the size of the carcass as well also matches with juvenile basking sharks. Uh, it's been reported to be anywhere from six to 10 feet long, so two to three meters. And that's about the same size as juvenile basking sharks. It's actually about the exact same size as the other ones that have been found inside sperm whales. So there are all these details that are just lining up to suggest that it is a basking shark. Oh, there's also another detail. Um, so most of the fins are gone from this carcass, but there are still the tail fins left. And they're sort of frayed. They have like fibers coming off the end. And that's pretty characteristic of shark decomposition. So their fins have these special fibers that provide skeletal support. They're called serratotrichia. And when they decay, they become really like floppy. They're not stiff as they are in life. They almost look hair-like once they start to decay. So this, the, the fringes of the fin on the tail of this carcass look pretty much exactly like the decayed fin of a shark. So, so all these details are coming together again to suggest that this carcass is not a Cadgurosaurus, but it's probably a basking shark that was eaten by a sperm whale, digested, and then found and heavily misinterpreted by the people who found it, and then also by the people describing it as a Cadgurosaurus. That's. But that's I still have yet to write this up and publish it, but hopefully soon I'll have it done—a more thorough analysis than has been previously done. I want to ask more about this practice of using photographs um, to, to be a holotype. Is this, is, I presume this is very uncommon and I presume it's just for when you, for whatever reason, you cannot get your hands on an actual type specimen. Yeah, it's, it's still not very common, but it is more common nowadays than it was back in the 1990s when they described Cadaverosaurus. Like I believe in the early 2000s, there was a species of monkey that they could not, they did not want to kill an individual to serve as the physical holotype. So they took a, a photograph of it. And I believe they published it in Science or Nature or one of the very prestigious zoological journals. And there was a big uproar back then about uh, photos serving as the holotype. And a lot of debate about that. But again, the, the code of zoological nomenclature had allowed it back then and still allows it now. So there's really nothing legally or formally yeah. wise. I presume the reason it. why the monkey situation is less controversial than Cadvarosaurus is that, that that photograph is presumably not the only photograph. Yes. <laughs> and they and and the year after, two years after, they did find that same specimen dead. It had died of natural causes. So then they brought back the specimen. And now since since again the photos themselves are not the holotype, it's the individual in the holotype. Now, since they have that individual in a museum collection, it is the holotype. Mm -hmm. So, and of course, the photographs were clearer. They're of an animal that is related to other animals yeah. that are already known. So, still not quite as controversial as Cadverosaurus, but but there is still kind of a stigma about photos serving as holotypes. This is really relevant to like deep sea um, studies because so many un new species are observed on pretty much any dive that happens. They'll photograph new species of cephalopods, worms, uh, fish, pretty much any animal you can imagine, but they're very hard to capture. They're living at deep depths, deep, oh, excuse me, deep depths. Their bodies are very gelatinous. You try to collect them and bring them up to the surface, but they just disintegrate into nothing. Yeah. So you can't really collect a holotype specimen. So the problem about the stigma about photos serving as holotypes is that we have all these unnamed species that it would be very unlikely for us to ever actually have a physical specimen of that a lot of scientists are too afraid to actually give a scientific name to. Hmm, wow. so, so you have all these unidentified species that really you have clear enough footage and you have clear enough photographs that you could properly describe, but there's such a stigma about it that they don't want to. Hmm. And then since they can't get physical specimens, they just remain in limbo. Right, so so it's kind of a frustrating issue. On one of those, are you opening yourself up to years of defending it and controversy and people trying to second guess you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. There have been multiple debates, papers back and forth, special issues of journals even dedicated to this topic and really no solution. The code has not changed at all since then. <laughs> and, and public opinion continues to remain split down the middle. Some are all for it. Some are heavily against it. There's really no end in sight to this issue, unfortunately. I, personally, I am in favor of being able to use photographs to serve as vouchers for a holotype specimen. 
especially again with these deep sea animals that you can get clear footage of and you can get diagnostic characteristics from, but that you cannot actually get a physical specimen of. So I, I am in favor of it. And I think it would it would help to clear up a lot of these unknown species that are difficult to identify by other people because they don't have a name attached to them. So I, I'm all, all in favor for it, but there are definitely people who are not in favor of it. That's that's tremendous, fascinating. Thanks, Tyler. Um, where can people find your work online? We talked about your blog. Maybe we, we can point people in that direction and, and are, are anything else that you're doing online that you'd like people to be aware of? Yeah, so I have a blog, insertacetus.wordpress.com. You might not get the spelling on first try, but if you get a link, it's easy enough. I also have a Twitter. I'm just at Tyler Greenfield on Twitter. Simple enough. So I do post there every once in a while about cryptozoology related stuff, usually more about paleontology, but I do do both. And that's yeah. mainly where I'm active. That on Twitter or on my blog is usually where you can find me. And I think listeners will enjoy both of those, even people who are not usually paleontology people. I think if you're interested in the stuff we cover on the show, you'll enjoy a lot of what, uh, what, Tyler, what you're putting out there because it's it's great stuff. Editing key in here. Uh, Tyler also has a page called the Cryptozoological Reference Library. It's an absolutely tremendous repository of articles and sections from books that have been published about cryptozoology. It's a very, very, I would say a vital resource for serious scholars of cryptozoology. So there will be a link in the show notes. Absolutely worth your time. And for regular listeners of this show, there should be a few familiar names amongst its contributors. Yeah, I really do a wide range of stuff. Dinosaurs, cephalopods, um, sharks. I do like sharks a lot. Um, cryptids, weird stories, <laughs> pretty much anything that you can imagine sort of related to natural history. I, I talk about it because it's what interests me. So you can find all of that content there. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Tyler. Yeah, you're welcome. And that is it for this episode, folks. Uh, once again, you can find us online over at Twitter. We are at Strange Ireland. And over on Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. And don't forget, you can support us with a nice one-off donation over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Wide Atlantic. And as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by